When we first threw around the idea of doing this series, um, we weren't really sure what to expect. My first question was, would anyone even put questions in the box? And then if they did, would they be questions that we could preach sermons on? Because I know how many jokesters there are in this congregation, and I was expecting there to be questions about fantasy football advice or cooking tips, which that would, I'd be the wrong person to answer that question. Maybe Matt could do, Matt Ewart, that is, could do, uh, do some on that one. I don't know. But I was impressed with all of the deep, good, important questions that were asked through the hot seat box. And honestly, our biggest struggle was which eight of these questions are we going to answer over the next eight weeks? And there was a particular group of questions that we really talked a lot about. And the reason was that they were really, really good questions, but they were on really, really delicate topics. And ultimately, we decided to include those questions in this series. And so over the next four weeks, there's going to be sermons or messages about suicide, about addiction, about pornography, about sexual orientation. And as we get going in this, you know, probably a little bit more difficult part of the hot seat series, I kind of wanted to give you the reason why we included them. I really believe that when things are hidden or ignored, there's very little chance that they'll ever get better. Let me give you an example. When Carrie and I were first married, for two years, we lived in a small, old farmhouse. It was called the Gatehouse. And uh, it wasn't the nicest place in the world. And we had certain problems, one of which I, I will share with you in, here in just a moment. One night, we were watching TV, and uh, all of a sudden, we smelled something, and I convinced her it was not me. And, uh, but there was an aroma coming through the, the furnace vents. And so in that moment, let me say, I would have rather, you know, kind of gone the other way from the smell, but that would not have done us much good. So I went on a search. And ultimately what I found was a dead mouse right near the blower fan for the furnace. Just kind of wafting that smell, that dead mice smell, mouse smell all over the house. So I got rid of the mouse and got rid of the smell. Here's my point. If I would have just gone the other way in that moment as the smell is coming through the furnace vent, <laughs> we would not have gotten rid of the problem. We would not have addressed the problem. The problem would have remained hidden, and that would not have been good. Over the next four weeks, there's going to be some topics that honestly uh, are difficult to talk about and might cause some of us a little discomfort. But it's really good that we're talking about these. And it's really good that we're doing it at church. Because here's what I really believe about hidden things. That hidden things need to be brought into the light. 
And I capitalized the L on light for a reason, because I'm not talking about a flashlight. I'm talking about the light of God's word. That things that are hidden, even whether it be hidden sins or hidden fears or hidden guilt or hidden anger, whatever it is, hidden things have no chance really of being repaired or getting on the right course if hidden things are not brought in to the light of God's word. There's not going to be any quick fixes or easy solutions over the next four weeks, but what there will be is a path, a path to hope and hopefully a path to healing. So this week's question that was shared by one of you and hinted at by even others was this. What happens to someone who commits suicide? And that's a really, really good question. And I think partly why it's such a good question is that it's something, again, that we don't talk very often about, and yet most of you have been affected by it in one way or another whether it be a coworker, whether it be a friend, a loved one, a neighbor, a classmate. Stats tell us that every year there's about a million suicides in our world. In the United States last year, there's about 45,000. This affects many people and many families. And there's a lot of questions around it. There's a lot of mixed feelings. So, for instance, when someone you love dies, that's hard. When someone you love dies by taking their life, it's harder. Because there's so many other questions and feelings you're going through. Um, When someone you love dies, there's that sadness of missing them and having to go through life without them when someone commits suicide, there's feelings of maybe anger over such a selfish, self-focused sort of act to do. There's sometimes in my counseling, I have found people feeling lots of guilt because I should have seen the signs or I should have done something. Let me just tell you, those are questions that you just have to put out of your heart and mind. They are not from God and they lead you nowhere good. Those types of what if I should have questions that just get rid of those. There's for a Christian, there's the reality that everyone spends eternity somewhere. And so there can be, you know, the feelings of wonderment and frustration as to where our loved one might be. And is it possible for someone who commits suicide to go to heaven? This question uh, is one that uh, many of us have had. And it's been sort of, I guess, reinforced, the the question at least, uh, by certain activities of the church. This question about whether maybe suicide is an unforgivable sin. Maybe some of you are like me, that when you grew up, uh, your church refused to do the funeral of anyone in any circumstance of of committing suicide. Um, Some of you remember the days, I don't, because that's how young I am. No, (laughs) some of you remember the days when churches had their own cemeteries, right? And there were often, most of the time, policies in the church cemetery that if someone took their own life, that they could not be buried in the church cemetery. 
it raises questions. And there are these wonderments as different experiences we've had and how people have reacted to suicides and especially the church. Is it impossible for someone who commits suicide to go to heaven? Is it the unforgivable sin? Unforgivable sin. Well, let's start with this question as we unpack it. Is suicide a sin? To that question, very clearly the Bible speaks, and the answer is yes. It is not in God's will or God's desire or God's plan for someone to take their life. I I think a very easy passage to point to is the fifth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, you you shall not murder. And, And that is the murdering of someone else. That is also the taking of our own lives. And the reason why God sees this as such a big deal is ultimately when someone kills themselves or someone else, they are telling God, all right, Lord, get out of your throne and I'm going to take my seat there and I'm going to make decisions that only God himself, the giver of life, is able or has the authority to make. I am telling the giver of life that I am taking his gift and I'm going to decide when it should be over. And so suicide is a sin. And our second fill-in for today is this. Suicide should never be an option for a Christian. Now, let, let me tell you what I mean by this, because I want to acknowledge that even Christians have days or seasons of life where they've maybe thought about it, been tempted by it, or felt like, at the very least, I would rather die than go on, okay? And I don't want you to think that having those thoughts or being tempted with something like this means that you're not a Christian, Even Christians can get tempted with all types of sin. What I'm saying is, is that when you're in that moment of some sort of discouragement or despair or pain, just to recognize and to tell yourself and have this ingrained in your heart and your mind, today, in October of 2018, Pastor Ben said, because God said in that moment that suicide is never an option for you. It's never an option for a Christian. God has given us each and every day that we have. And he promises to never leave us, to never forsake us, to never give us more than we can bear with his help. Every day is a gift. There's no doubt that suicide is a sin, but how did it get the reputation of being an unforgivable sin? Now, there's a lot of layers to the answer to that and a lot of answers to that question. But I would say a lot of it can be traced back to history. And especially, at least one point, of a church father in the 1200s AD named Thomas Aquinas. This well-known church father, there are still, you know, schools named after him and maybe even some hospitals. He said that because a person does not have a chance to repent or confess of their sin of suicide because it's their last act, that that would mean that there's no way that they could spend eternity in heaven. 
Is that true? Well, let's carry out that logic for a moment. Hypothetical with me. Let's say that a Christian is driving down a two-lane highway. Okay? They're driving, well, it's posted at 55, and even Christians go over the speed limit sometimes, right? Okay, so let's say they're going 60, 65, whatever it is, all right? So they're driving down this two-lane highway, and all of a sudden, someone swerves into that lane. It's a head-on collision, and the Christian dies. You can imagine a little bit of fear going on as that impact is making itself obvious. And in those moments, we don't always necessarily make the most God-pleasing decisions, right? And there's a really good chance in a situation like that, that this Christian, with his final breath, said, Oh, and, you know, fill in whatever for little word you want, right? Was that wrong? To swear? To curse? Yeah. It was the last thing he did. Does that mean he can't go to heaven? Or, or how about this scenario, which we can all relate to? What if there is a Christian who dies that didn't have a chance to confess every single sin they've ever thought, said, or did? Do you know anyone like that? Like all of us, right? There is no way that I am going to be able to recall or even sometimes realize where my heart and mind are when it comes to certain sins and certain feelings that, and attitudes that could be classified as sinful. Guess how many of us this happens to? All of us. Should we all be nervous about our eternal destination then? Well, what does the light of God's word have to say? In what is the most famous verse of the Bible for good reasons because it recaps the central truth of the gospel. We have Jesus' words, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son who happens to be Jesus, that whoever believes, whoever puts their trust in him, whoever says, I can't do it on my own, but Lord, I am relying on you for my forgiveness and my salvation, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. We are saved and forgiven because of this. Because Jesus Christ was our perfect substitute. And he lived the perfect life that none of us in this room can live. And then the perfect lamb of God sacrificed himself willingly on a cross so that you and I someday don't need to end up suffering the pains of hell. He did it for you and for me and every sinner. And then the Holy Spirit worked this belief in your heart and gave you the gift of faith and the gift of salvation, all because of what he has done and nothing in us. And as you look through the Bible, there's this interesting phrase that comes up over and over again to describe the state of a Christian. I have just four of them listed here. In each of these, it's the same phrase, and I love this phrase. First one, Romans 8. There is no condemnation or condemning for those who are in Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is 
in Christ, in his sphere, in his family, that person is a new creation, a new life, a new lease on life, a new eternity. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin, that be, being Jesus, to be sin for us because he took our sin, his, our sin on him so that then in him we might become the righteousness or the holiness of God. Or Galatians 3, 26. So in Christ Jesus, when you are in him, you are all children of God through faith. The Bible speaks of faith as being a state of being. So to maybe sort of give you a picture of this, it's like those who have faith, they're in Christ. They're in the circle of Christ. They're in the family of Christ. And does every little sin and lack of confession in your day cause you to go in and out of faith? Is like Christian faith like a game of musical chairs with <laughs> really eternal consequences, right? I mean, if that were the case, that with every sin, until we confessed we were out of the circle, then I should be telling you to confess every 30 seconds all that you did the last 30 seconds, and for some of you, I would say five seconds, okay? <laughs> if it's a game of musical chairs, and you better hit it right, that when the trumpets blow, I am in and not out because I've confessed, then we all should be nervous, and we should all spend our lives just sitting around confessing. That's not how the Bible speaks. The Bible speaks this way, that forgiveness is found in the work of Jesus, not in the work of confessing. Now, don't get me wrong. Someone who is in Christ will desire to confess their sins. Someone who is in Christ will live, God willing, in a state of repentance throughout their lives. But the actual work of confessing, the actual deed of confessing, that's a very thin string to rest our salvation on and ultimately lends itself to a works-based type of confidence rather than on the work of Jesus Christ in our place. All sins have been paid for by Christ on the cross. There is no unforgivable sin. All sins are forgivable. The only thing that can remove a person from heaven is a rejection of Jesus. Let's be clear. But it begs this question. Has a person who has committed suicide rejected Jesus then? Some have thought that way for all who would commit suicide. This is a difficult topic, and I think one that goes to show just how serious suicide is and why I would say suicide should never be an option for a Christian. And there are examples in Scripture. I'll take one of someone who did commit suicide, and it was a rejection of the hope of Christ. 
you probably know his name. His name is Judas Iscariot. He betrayed Jesus into death, recognized it was the wrong thing to do because Jesus, he knew, was innocent. He threw back the 30 silver coins, but instead of closing the loop and returning to Christ emotionally, mentally, and spiritually for forgiveness, in his despair, he killed himself. And the Bible tells us that he ended up where he was meant to be, is the phrase that is used. But is every suicide this way? I don't think we can say that. I don't think we can say that everyone is a rejection of Jesus and hope. Here's one example. Have you ever known someone to trust in Jesus for salvation, but to doubt other promises of God? Ever known someone like that? I think every day is a wrestling match with being confident in my salvation, but doubting some things about whether God will really get me through this or really has the best intentions for me or whatever it might be. I don't know what it is that you might doubt, but I do know that you do sometimes. We are not saved by the size of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. The other thing I want to open your minds and hearts to is this, with this question, is as we begin to know even more about how the mind works and about mental illnesses and about the the deep depression that some people may have or, or struggle with, the reality is that makes it hard. It makes it hard because people sometimes do things that their hearts maybe are not wanting to do. I was talking to a Christian counselor this week who's a friend of mine, and I asked him about this topic and how he has sort of unpacked it with people or talked about it with people in line with Scripture. And he said that in his experience, there are people who have committed suicide for heart reasons. And that would be that their heart, like Judas Iscariot, has rejected Christ as their hope, and they have gone outside of the sphere of Christ. But he said, in his experience, most of the time, and only God can really tell for sure, his experience is that most of the time people in that situation have done it for head reasons. And what he said is sometimes people lose their mind but haven't lost their heart. Is that possible? Absolutely. Does that happen often? I would say so. Where someone is going through something that they're just not thinking straight. Let us never use that as an excuse, right? But let's just acknowledge it as we come into these situations that that can be the case. And here's what we do. We let God be God and know that he will perfectly sort these things out ultimately. Now, up until this point, I've answered the question, haven't I? But I didn't feel like I could preach this sermon without mapping out a path to hope for you. 
Here's the thing. Um, there are going to be some people who hear this message, whether in this room or online, who have, have thought about ending their life. There are people who, if nonetheless, have wished their life to be over in one way or another, right? All of us have gone through seasons of deep pain and despair. And yet, there's hope for all of us in any circumstance or situation that we might face. And as I was thinking about how to, you know, share the hope and where in Scripture might we find that path to hope, I thought about a man in the Old Testament, a prophet of God. His name was Elijah. Elijah was a great man of faith, and we know he's in heaven with the Lord. The Lord used him to do some really tremendous things. He was tasked with sharing the message of the true God in a nation at the time that, for the most part, had totally rejected the true God. In fact, you might have heard of the king and queen at the time of Elijah. Their names were Ahab and Jezebel. Good old, or not so good old Jezebel, right? And so Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel had a lot of conflict with each other. And right before the section that we're going to read, God used Elijah to win a great victory over the prophets of Baal as a, as a fireball came from heaven and sort of burned up an offering, right? And Elijah thought that this was the beginning of a new season, a new chapter in his life. He had lived most of his life in fear of his life and in sort of the shadows, but this would be the event that would turn Ahab and Jezebel to the true God and Elijah would be raised up as a hero, and we see his confidence in this new season when after this, you know, show or display from heaven with the fireball happened, he actually went where he normally would never go. He headed straight to the town, which was the home of Ahab and Jezebel, because he thought it was a new chapter, that he'd be revered and cherished. 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how after this fireball from heaven experience, how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with the sword as directed by God. Verse 2. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, and it wasn't, oh, Elijah, we love you. We're going to start, you know, worshiping the true God. No, it was, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life, Elijah, like that of one of them. And in this, I think we see so often the beginnings of our frustration with God and in our points of deep despair. So often it's a downward spiral that starts with, like Elijah, here's how I thought things would go and here is my reality. Here is the story I wanted to write and here's the story that God is writing. Can you relate? Almost every difficult pain or painful feeling we have kind of starts in this very place. So, what does Elijah do next? Verse 3. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, which was a long ways away, Elijah was running, running from all that he knew, running from Jezebel, running from God, running from everybody. He left his servant also in Beersheba, 
the two were traveling together, while he himself, all by himself, went a day's journey into the wilderness. Verse 4, continuing. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I think Elijah, while not saying that he would take his own life, was somewhat suicidal. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And so Elijah goes from being fearful to wanting his life to be over. And do you notice what happened in his actions? Did you notice what he left behind? Like everyone. In his despair, he isolated himself from everybody. We were never meant to live in isolation. And I understand, because I've had seasons of deep discouragement, maybe not as deep as yours, how our gut reaction is to just be by ourselves. And sometimes we need a little bit of that. But an extended period of dealing with grief or despair on your own leads nowhere good. God did not design you to live alone or to deal with grief or despair alone. We need to do life together. When you're in despair, and even when you're not, we need to have people in our lives that we can speak to and talk with. Maybe it's a good Christian friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe um, it's a spouse. Um, maybe it's a classmate who has a good perspective on life, teens. Some of you are thinking right now, I, I don't have any of those things. And I would tell you that you're a liar. Because I am telling you right now that... I will be that for you. If you feel like you don't have anyone, any human being, then maybe that's why you were here today, for you to hear me say, I will be there for you. Call me. Email me. I'm not professing that I can fix all your problems. I, I don't have that kind of power. But I can walk with you. And over 15 years of ministry, I'll tell you, Whatever it is you're struggling with, you won't surprise me. I've heard worse. But here's the thing that Elijah missed, and what you need to hear as this path to hope, is that we need to walk through the pain with the help of others and not by ourselves. If you're feeling really depressed and down about life, don't deal with that pain on your own. Enlist the help of others. Walk through the pain with someone you trust. Look what else is going on as we close up today. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Next verse. He looked around and there by his head, Elijah's head, was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. So an angel shows up. In essence, God showed up. And Elijah was reminded that as he ran from God, God never ran from him. 
And as I was reading through this, I've preached on this section before. I'm thinking, that's a really odd next thing that the angel did for Elijah. Like, you'd think that God comes down and is like, why are you running? And Elijah needed a sermon in that moment, right? Preach it, God. And yet God does what your mom does when you've had a really bad day. God puts on an apron and cooks a meal for Elijah. And it just caught me this time that I read this. And I don't profess to knowing, like, all the reasons why he started here. But I will tell you what it taught to me. That God has a deep, deep love for Elijah. And more than just preaching a sermon, he wanted to be there for him. There'd be time for a message later, but for now, here's some hot bread. What could be better than that? And some water. And what even blew my mind even more is at the top of that verse there, it says, the angel of the Lord. That's a, that's a phrase in the Old Testament that is designed to speak about not an angel at all. But every time that phrase shows up, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus was right there in Elijah's hurt. Baking bread to make him feel better. But even bigger than that, Jesus showed his love for you by stretching out his arms and paying the price of sin that we deserve to pay. And by that power of his death and resurrection, however you feel about your life, however you feel about where you're at, know that you are deeply loved by Jesus. And may your heart point to the cross to see that there is always hope that pain, while deep, always goes away. And that ultimately, heaven is ours because of what Jesus has done. So wait on Jesus. Just wait. Because we walk through the pain with others, but we get through the pain by the power of Jesus. The Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco is a place where um, many have chosen to end their lives over the years. And in the not-too-distant past, they started to post this sign. There is hope. Make the call. And of course, this is specifically referencing crisis counseling, and that can be a blessing depending on what season we're in. Remember, don't isolate yourself. Walk with others. But for us and for our purposes and for the light of God's word, I see this encouragement in a different way. There is always hope. Call upon others who love you. Call upon God who will help you.
Jesus died so you would always have reason to live. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, this is a a difficult topic. One that, depending on who we are in this room, hits us in different ways. For some of us, there's a person that we're thinking about. For others of us, there's just deep guilt. Um, There's there's dealing with pain. Uh, Lord, help all of us to recognize today that there is always hope, not in ourselves or our ability to get through it on our own. There is hope through you and your son, Jesus, who baked bread for Elijah and then years later died for him and for us. And the God who puts people in our lives who want to be there, even in our deepest, darkest days. And so I pray that we all leave today with hope, knowing that you are our hope. One of the things that can happen and one of the things that gets us into deep despair, even if it's not suicidal, is like self-talk that isn't good, isn't healthy, and most of the time isn't even true. Sometimes we just need to stop the self-talk and reflect on what you say, God. And that's exactly the idea behind this last song. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently as it's a time of reflection more than anything. I'd love for you to just remain seated as you listen to these words. And uh, towards the end, it's going to get pretty familiar. And uh, you are welcome to join in then or earlier if you'd like. But may we make this a time of, of thinking and prayer.
Oh, the bliss of this glory. 